written, I'm just going to take like the first part of the verse, um, but it's a prescriptive thing that God is saying to the, the people who are waiting to be wiped out. And thus says the Lord, stand by the roads and look and ask, stand by the roads and look and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it and find rest for your souls. And then Psalm 139, Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24. This is a psalm of David. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. The word everlasting there um, gets tied to the idea of ancient paths. The same word is being used of the Jeremiah thing I just read. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. You may be seated. When things go wrong in your life, I mean, they just kind of like snowball. Consider it the discipline of God, for sure. Discipline is good. The discipline, it can come as a means of punishment and correction. Never write that off. But it may also just be to instruct you and strengthen your faith these tough times, these things that are going wrong for you. I know when things with the business go sideways, like too many at the same time, some dissatisfaction by customers, some mistakes made by, by us, and then on the home front, I'm sick or this or that happens, and it all seems to be mushrooming, I, I'm careful to wonder, God, am I, is there something in me that I'm doing that's displeasing to you? Are you trying to correct me for wrongdoing? And certainly we can, we can think, well, I can weather all storms by depending on God and he brings tough things, difficult things in our, into our lives in order to try our faith, in order to increase it and make us better people. Certainly that's the case. But it's also true at times that we need to be spanked. Just as love requires a parent to teach and to punish a child. So God's discipline is for those he loves. Consider yourself God's child. 
So what is it that made the patriarch David a child to be admired? Why should we admire him? What can he teach us? It is that God considered him someone after his own heart. He wanted what God wanted most of the time. You see it in his prayers, the example we read. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, which means know know my cares. And see if there be any grievous way in me, David says. And lead me in the way everlasting, as I said, in the ancient way. He was a humble man. We talk about humility. People like the idea of humility. But sometimes they get they get the idea of humility in their heads, and humility to them is to not make people bristle, to always listen to everyone and consider everyone's opinion of equal value and so on and so forth and not fight for your own way. And that's not humility necessarily at all. For David... The way God views humility is when he has a man or a woman who says, I'm not important, God is. God is important. It's, it's the humility of a child when he thinks, my father's will be done, not mine. And that sounds like Jesus, right? You should think about this. Is is this your prayer as God's child? Is this your prayer? See if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. How else do you know? How else do you learn what the proper outlook should be in life, in your life? You have to ask God to show you. You say to him, God, is there a grievous way in me? Do I grieve you? You know my heart better than I do. You know the things I care about too little or too much. Oh, Lord, show me my errors. Fix me. Show me your ancient paths, your commands, that I might walk in them. Back to that call to worship, Isaiah 66.2. This is humility, okay? It is as Isaiah says, these are the ones I look on with favor, those who are humble and contrite in spirit and who tremble at my word. Be warned. It is God's way to hinder those who don't live humbly. It is his way to hinder you and me. Who do not conform our lives to his word. 
He can't, he can't allow that. He loves us too much. Be warned. He often undoes what you are trying to do. He pokes holes in your money bags. He brings sickness and plague and storm and battle. God will not tolerate you to stubbornly go your way. And we do that in real incremental hidden ways. He will not permit it for long, at least. Something bad will happen. A storm may turn into a blizzard, minor bill, payment delinquencies could turn into full foreclosure. One day you may be whistling off to work, the next day you're in a hospital bed. One moment you and your wife are dining and laughing, and the next your spouse serves you with divorce papers. Do bad things happen to faithful people? Yes. If God is is training you toward greater faithfulness, he has reasons sometimes for difficult things to happen. We don't always know why. But do bad things happen to those acting unfaithfully? Positively they do. Count on it. Bad things happen to those who are acting unfaithfully. So become faithful. Maybe become faithful before they have to. For sure, we are not to blame God for our sin. Nor for some dastardly sinner who acts against us and we suffer that way. Yet God is in all the consequences and the circumstances of life. And though we mustn't be quick to assign every sickness and trial and burden and calamity to particular sins, because we don't know God's exhaustive thought, still, we shouldn't conclude that God is arbitrary in his judgments. What kind of God would he be if we couldn't get a feel for the things that displeased him or pleased him and then the idea that he wouldn't act upon that? What kind of God would that be? Why, that would be like a parent running around the house with his yardstick, smacking kids for doing good things and giving them cupcakes when they're naughty. For sure, we're not to blame God for people who sin against us. But he is in control. You'd have to leave the Bible to avoid the constant refrain that God disapproves and judges sin with dark things. You'd have to leave the Bible, and some have, while... Simultaneously, he approves 
of obedience and blesses those who obey, often using good things from his creation to do it. Not that that's the only way he blesses. The prophet Jonah did not fight the obvious conclusion of his rebellion. He told the crew of the ship, okay, because God had brought a great storm upon the ship. People were, the ship was going to go under. They were abandoning the cargo to try to make it lighter. And Jonah said, pick me up and throw me into the sea. And it will become calm. I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Well, could he make such a judgment? He had a pretty good hunch. They threw him into the sea and things calmed down. Just as Jonah figured. But what about Job, you ask? What about Job? Doesn't the... The story of Job teaches that God may bring good thi- bad things unto good people. Yes. Kind of teaches that. Job opens the door to the possibility and probability that God rules according to knowledge and purposes that are out of our reach. We don't get it. We are not God. Our knowledge is finite, infinitesimal. It was God's lesson for Job and his friends. However, the story of Job does not make God arbitrary. He still is who he is, and he acts accordingly. He's still a God of justice and love and wrath and grace. And his character is displayed in both his word and his creation and his judgments. We are promised consequences for obedience and disobedience. Oh, but I don't, I don't accept that. We can't know. Does, not, does God not keep his word? We are promised consequences for obedience and disobedience. This is the God and world we are humbly to make sense of. It's not given to us to create our own world with a God who does not judge and who must always forgive and pacify, who must always love and forget Just as a child depends on the parents to judge according to communicated standards. It's how children start to make sense of this world. Dad told me not to do this. He said I'd get spanked if I did it. And I did it. And guess what happened? He didn't spank me. How are you helping your children in such a world that you've created? So it stands to reason that when the prophet Samuel 
says to Saul, king of Israel, you have done foolishly. Saul was the king. Samuel comes up to him, the prophet. You have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people. Because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Consequences. It makes sense to us to read that. We can read every story in the Bible, and it makes sense. It goes with God's character. It complies with his word. And so we say Saul got what was coming to him, didn't he? He should have known better. He should have obeyed. What had he done? Well, he... He sought military victory, good thing, right? By strength of his own arm, unfortunately. He did not wait upon Samuel. He did not wait upon God. And in his patriotic fervor, Saul determined to act swiftly. And he ordered the priests to sacrifice burnt offerings, which were to be followed by the peace offerings to the Lord. That sounds good. But as he's about to do the latter, Samuel comes and announces to Saul that he had forfeited the kingdom to another. Saul was not the one to order sacrifices. Saul did not know his place. This is one of our biggest problems as Christians sometimes. We think we got a, a good game plan. We think we, we've heard what God says and what, we know what God wants but then we determine to do things and tweak things because we want to do things according to our terms and in our way. And sometimes those terms and those ways take us off the path. My point is not Saul's sin. My point is your sin and my sin. Saul is merely an example of someone leaning away from God. Leaning away from God. It's the human tendency to want to obey the Lord, but on our terms. History is filled with men and women like this. We tend toward self-will. But here's the biggest question I have, and it's the reason I've even delved into this topic today. Is it possible that you can be living against the Lord and not know it? Is it possible for a sinful habit, maybe a little one, to steer you away from the Father. As Chesterton suggests in today's quote for the week, there are evils we tend to accept in ourselves. We do. We don't even think about them being evil half the time. I want to read the quote. 
It's a great quote. It's a refrigerator mag magnet type quote. Men do not differ much about what things they will call evils. They differ enormously about what evils they will call excusable. What about that? Do you excuse some things you do as if they were eh, irrelevant? You brush it off, saying, nah, it's just how I am. It's how I do things. It's how I, how I roll. It's my personality or personality type or it's my heritage. We're stubborn. Or I'm good at spotting defects. I'm really good at it. Or I'm an introvert. Or an extrovert. Or I'm cautious with, with my money. Could it be that maybe you're disguising your sin when you do that? You're calling your sins kind of something else. Because, you know, being cautious with money, it can look an awful lot to God like you're greedy, maybe unwilling to give the tithe. Maybe it doesn't look that way to you right now, but you need to ask him about that. Or you're unwilling to pay your workers what they deserve. You're cautious with your money. And being an introvert, well, to God, that can look an awful lot like you're selfish, unwilling to do the least to be kind to others or even recognize God in, in front of other people and be ashamed of Christ. That's what it could look like to him. And what it looks like to him is more important than what you're calling it. And to be good at spotting defects. Why, that's the greatest skill of all for some church people. But it does smell a lot like judgmentalism, pride, gossip, and overall Pharisaism. Is there any way in you right now that you're unaware of that is unseemly? Or maybe there's a way in you that is unseemly, but you're okay, you tolerate it, because you're still a work in progress. Any watershed sin? Watershed, okay, so it, it, the, the drop of water maybe lands on one side of, of the roof peak and it goes this way, you know, if it lands on just to this side, it will roll off that way. Well, if your sin has taken you beyond the peak from God, it's become a watershed sin. It's going to lead you far away if it's not dealt with. Any watershed sin that has placed you far from righteousness You need to know your battle is with God. Paul, the apostle Paul kicked against the gold, against the goads, he was told. 
when he persecuted the church. He didn't realize it in some ways. He thought he was doing right. But he was persecuting Jesus, it was explained. Jonah, by his self-will, refused God's call to preach to Nineveh. And God put him in a storm and in a fish, and he kind of battled against creation when he lived against God. In each case of going wayward from God, it may start with a particular sin. Please hear this. It may start with a particular sin. But the root problem, your root problem, is the intentionality of thinking, I will do it my way. And God will somehow accept me. I will do it my way, and he will accept me. Nope. Now, maybe you're more honest about it, and, and you would call your pet sins, or you would not call your pet sins excusable. But you, t- you still tell yourself they're easily forgiven, so I don't really have to repent of them or it. Jesus died for me, you say, and he did. And so we find it simple, too simple, to commit some small but recurring sin and ignore the repercussions with God. We commit the sin and lightning didn't strike, and we do it again, and we do it again, and we ask for forgiveness, we do it again. There are repercussions. Don't pass it off as forgivable. But back to the question of the hour. Have you allowed yourself or your household even, hear this, or your household even to entertain and practice sins that have turned your life against God? Be warned. When your life begins to orbit around your desires rather than God's, then it will begin to break apart. That is a return to what I said earlier. God disapproves and judges sin with dark things, while he approves obedience by blessing those who obey with the good things of his creation. All the created order was made to gravitate toward God. All created order gravitates toward God. He is the glorious one. He compels things and they come. So if you repel from him, if you decide to turn from him, it means that you will continue to be rammed against and bombarded by creation. Weeds instead of grain, drought in place of fresh water, debt in exchange of riches.
Now, some don't want to be corrected. They don't want to hear God's word plainly. I get it. Go your way. So a partial teaching of God's word appeals to them. A partial teaching. They're shopping for it. Some shop for it. I want to find the right book that supports what I believe. And the supply of such teaching is always offered, always offered due to the demand for it. Some sin is big and obvious to all. But there is other sin we think of as small, less significant, often unnoticeable. It's like scraping your knee when you do it. You feel it at first, but it goes away. Yet that knee scrape, if it happens again and again, left unattended, pretty soon you got an infection. And it brings me back to that question. Is it possible that you can be living against the Lord and not know it? I'm not suggesting you go crazy with this. But I am suggesting you take God seriously here. Is it possible that some sinful habit has set you on course away from God? And this could be a household sin and not just your own doing. Malachi is a prophet. The book named Malachi is the last book of the Older Covenant. And throughout the book, the sins of the priests and the people are condemned. The thing that I find most interesting and why I bring it up is that Malachi, God repeatedly, repeatedly confronts the people with their wrongdoing. But the people, in each case, sound surprised by his accusation. I'll read you a few of these. It goes like this, chapter 1, verse 6. And if I am a master, where is my fear, says the Lord of hosts to you? O priests who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? Chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. You cover the Lord's altar with, your, with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Chapter 2, verse 17, you have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, how have we wearied him? Chapter 3, verse 8, will man rob God, yet you are robbing me, but you say, how have we robbed you? It's crazy. I mean, you, you think about this. They were really at a place in their religious life where they didn't have a clue how they were misbehaving toward God. 3.13, your words have been hard against me, says the Lord, but you say, how have we spoken against you? 
it goes on like this, and you begin to wonder, can, can they even see their sins as God sees them? We all kind of think, oh yeah, well, they knew they were doing wrong, and I think deep down they probably did. But is it possible to be that Christian? Is it possible that they'd become carelessly blind? He's speaking to his people. They claim, to, they claim him as their God. But they're living against the Father, and in some way they don't realize it. They've just wandered from him. Okay, and here's the caution for you and me. Because you and I, we go, we'd never do that. We obviously are the good guys, right? And then you think about Jesus when he warned, warned wasn't it Jesus that said, um, um, you condemn those who killed the prophets and so on, and you claim that you'd be the righteous ones. But he, but he was speaking to the Pharisees and scribes and, and the rebels of his day. So... We don't often put ourselves in the shoes of the potential rebellious, do we? I think there's a cure for this. I think there's a cure for this. I think there's a way you can know that you're not putting yourself in those shoes. And we'll get back to David to hear it. I'm not ready for that yet. The book ends, uh, Malachi ends in chapter 4, four chapters, sweet chapters, only six verses in the final chapter. Verse 4 is the answer to their predicament. Here's the answer to their predicament. It says simply, remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. You want humility? It's God's way, not yours. God's way, not mine. Are you careless or blind to a comfortable sin that has put God at odds with you? You will reap what you sow. And there is a name, okay, there is a name for an embedded sin that becomes a person's like main fault. Constant fault. It's called a besetting sin. A besetting sin. A besetting sin is one that is persistent and, and therefore troubles or threatens your life. A besetting sin is like mercury in your body. It wants to stay inside of you. Usually, you know what it is, this sin. You do. It's your bad tendency it's your regular sin behavior. It's your comfort food. You do it with little to stop you, little to stop you. And it is a sin often particular to you. People, the people close to you at least, probably, probably know you for this. Although, maybe they don't mention it. Or maybe it's a sin that besets your household. Gossip. Having a critical spirit. Being a worrier. Laziness. Greed. Disrespect for those in authority. 
carelessness, acting as the false teacher by what you say to others, being one who envies or resents. These sins can be kind of easily hid. These are the ones we can disguise sometimes, but they ruin people and families. Before I said, you reap what you sow. You want to hear exactly what Paul said? Galatians 6, 7 through 9. Here's exactly what he wrote. He says, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. Galatians 6, 7 through 9. I remember years ago, while we were in Elto here, getting to a point where I had to consciously, consciously quit talking about other people critically. I had to just consciously do this. I, I, I'm not perfect at this, okay? If you've heard me do it in the last week, okay, don't say, well, he says he quit doing it. Okay. I was really bad if that's the case. All right? I had to consciously quit talking about other people critically as a man. And in our home, Tracy and I had to ban it kind of from our conversations. Not saying it doesn't sneak up, but things are sweeter now. My thoughts of other people, my thoughts of other family members or, or church members or coworkers are, are sweeter now than they were back when I would do that proverb thing where you'd hear gossip and you'd take it in like a morsel that tasted so sweet but then made your stomach bitter once it entered into your body. That's what gossip does. That's what making and giving your so important critical analysis of every human being you know. Yikes. And my feelings and thoughts of others, of you, has improved. I can tell you God was not pleased with me. Had he confronted me, though, when I was in the, the throes of it, it would have sounded like this. He would have said, you have attacked me by your cutting tongue. But you say, how has my tongue cut you? It would have sounded a lot like the clowns in Malachi. I would have been that clown. I don't think I would have claimed it as my comfortable sin problem, my comfort food but it was. I would have rationalized it away as serving some good purpose. Yeah, we've got to be able to see things clearly. We've got to be able to analyze what's going on here. You know, people have got to make these judgments about. I would not have acknowledged my sin. At some point, apparently, I did. Listen, you've, you've heard from, you've heard the verse from Jeremiah Jeremiah 17, 9, and the heart 
the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? That is a wonderful verse, a sober verse. It is a caution, really, that you do not know yourself as you should and as you think you do. We must always want ears to hear and eyes to see. It's good to be circumspect with God. He wants to help us here, okay? He is a Father who loves us, who disciplines us because He loves us. That is why He disciplines. He wants what is good for us. But to get ears to hear and eyes to see, you go back to David. And this is your hope for not tricking yourself in continuing down this path. Do what David did. Pray for it. And do it regularly. Pray for it regularly. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. That's how you start to become a man or woman after God's own heart. That kind of a prayer. Let's pray. Lord, I ask that you search us and know our hearts, that we would, uh, if we have grievous ways in us, if there's a particular besetting sin that you want a person or a family to deal with, that you would make it quite evident to them. And if if it means, Lord, that you... You uh, poke a hole, a greater hole in their money bag or or whatever else, what other judgments you might um, bring about, we know that it would ultimately serve for their good and their improvement. And so we'd ask that we would be um, people who are tender toward you in, in considering our ways. In Jesus' name.